Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. This is Equally Lost, the weekly podcast on design, business, and existential crises. I'm Sophia, and today with me is... Elsa. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Elsa. What's up? Well, as you know, I have had a very tough 24 hours. Actually, like, just like these past two weeks have just like been a mess as a whole but so I was just telling Sophia that yesterday I got the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine which we're very grateful for and um, I like literally do not quote me on this but I'm so grateful for the US healthcare system for this one thing (laughs) because in Finland (laughs) because that's a sentence I never thought I'd say but so yeah I got it yesterday and today I woke up with just like this pounding headache that went from like my forehead all the way down to my jaw and before that like during the night I'd woken up like with chills just like running up and down my body so um today is going to be interesting I don't have a fever yet but we'll see I mean, that's a mystical experience. But to be honest, I, I, I think it's quite easy to get a vaccine in the US, given that it's the US producing it and you don't have to rely <laughs> on the whole export mass of doses and contracting. Like, what the fuck? Why didn't they make the patent? Like, why didn't they give the patent out to everyone? They just want to profit on this. No, that's exactly it, right? And that's why basically like 75% of the world that's not a rich industrialized country is like just gonna continue with the pandemic for like three more years it's gonna be catastrophic and India is running out of oxygen anyway those are really fun things Sophia what have you been doing <laughs> I mean it's quite it's been quite of a how a ride this week as well I had so much to do with my dissertation because um, I had to meet my supervisor and didn't want to like you know seem like I didn't do shit uh, so far when we agreed on the topic end of February and so I literally ended up like going to bed pulling an all-nighter to just get shit done as much as possible because um, I didn't want to like let him down but it, it turned out fine like it turned out my work went fine and also because I'm coding stuff I thought like one variable was completely like wrong but turns out it was right and so I lost time in that and I was like oh my fucking god I'm never gonna see the light of day out of this um, but today was a pleasant day. It was my, it was the birthday of my flatmate, um, Lucia. And so we went to this really, like, it's basically like the equivalent of Central Park for Milan. Um, and it was so full of people and they're lifting up restrictions. We can go back to bars on Monday. So expect me wow. to, like, my goal for next week is literally is to be on a bar every fucking evening and having a drink because, like, I deserve it. And you know what I did? I did something really cute though this Thursday. I went on like a art galleries walk with Canon, my first tea. And I saw pictures, we were, yeah. Uh, yeah, and while we were visiting one of these, the artist walked in and he was like, Oh girls, do you speak English? I'm like, Yeah, yeah, of course we do. And it's like, oh, I'm Yuval, I'm like I'm, I'm I'm an Israeli artist. This is my exhibition. We want me to walk you through it. And it was so fucking cool because it was also like contemporary art, so it was quite hard to you know 
understand it like on your own and so there was like this cube thing that was like making sounds there was water on top of it that was like moving um according to the you know the wavelength of the sound and it's like oh yeah here like i registered the sound of the volcano etna in sicily and this is like replicating it and then it was like it was super spiritual super creative and i was like damn like i i miss meeting people you know yeah oh that's amazing yeah holy fuck we're super lucky yeah. we're super lucky yeah we're very serendip- serendipitous one might say yeah wait so many questions what so what did you we talked about your thesis and like the two options that you were juggling back in february so what did you end up doing hong kong i'm doing it in hong kong i'm doing the um impact of the hong kong protests on the financial market that's very cool that's very cool I'm very contemporary yeah. too, yeah. So what was the gallery that you were at then? It was called, it's called Building. It's a pretty huge gallery. It's like four floors. And so with the artists, um, each floor had a team. So it, because he's an artist that, you know, draws about like nature and he's like really spiritual. He lives like one month with this like ab- native native people in Taiwan and so there was these pictures of like the smoke and I was like, oh, this is from the time I was living there um, because um, they invited me to this sacred hunt. And then, but you, you like without his explanation, you wouldn't have this kind of insight, you know, because it was just looking like re- really abstract smoke that was like red and gray, etc. cetera. Um, and then, yeah, I was like, oh, I drew these ones during the, lo- the first lockdown in Italy. Um, and then there's one where he, he actually drew his daughter. Um, you know, it, it was it was really nice. And you could ask him like follow up questions like, oh, what inspired you to do that? Why did you do this? Um, yeah, I recommend. No, I love that. That's so cool. You'll have to bring me when I finally fucking get to Milan. Thing that we've been talking about for like what two years now, and this oh just never happens. Oh my god! Honestly, just oh show up god. at my door at this point. Like it's, it's probably gonna happen way more. Like. Oh my God. So that was a perfect transition into our Don't Even Get Me Started because so what is coming together here is vaccines, travel, and in some cases, Israel. So um, I I I want to know what you think about the efforts to make vaccine passports a thing. And so just for like anyone who doesn't know, of course, now they're like a growing population of you know the western world i suppose because it would be misleading to say the world um is getting vaccinated and people are just kind of like dying to travel dying to get back to the normal like the regularly scheduled programming i should say um there have been efforts to construct ways in which you can check if someone's been vaccinated or not and that would award them certain privileges and so it's not like a literal passport so for example this new york times article was talking about basically being like a qr code or some type of like you know app that Mm -hmm. can give you not just the info that you've been vaccinated but when you were vaccinated what batch it was have you gotten a booster like all sorts of like really you know useful information And, you know, I think my knee-jerk reaction would be like, okay, that's like fine, whatever. But then when you start thinking about it like on a global scale, I think personally, and I want to know what you think about this, is 
it is just like one more way of like limiting movement along already existing inequities if mm. that makes sense like for example if you're from like a really impoverished country and a country that you're trying to move into to like work for example requires a vaccine passport and you just like haven't been able to get it because there are so many inequities in vaccine access then you're fucked basically um but yeah what do you think i have many talking points about this so first of all like it's not only like a within like um you know between country thing i also think it's a within country thing because you know you create this new kind of elite of deep vaccinated against those who aren't yet um which i don't know i find it really disturbing in a sense that you i mean it makes sense because if you want to contain like covid the pandemic the outbreaks and like spreading the disease um it makes sense if you, you would allow more things um to people that are vaccinated but i mean the choice of who you vaccinate is quite arbitrary i would say although i mean it's done to prevent as many as many deaths as possible which i mean it's all fair um and then yeah between countries i definitely agree with your point but it's like in Italy, they're discussing about this thing right now um, because of the restrictions that we have. You can only like move between regions for uh, school work or like or like very urgent, uh, very special needs. And now they're thinking, you know, to like try to also get the, the economy starting again, and especially the tourist, the tourist sector, which has been like super affected by this um, to, you know, give this kind of like green pass for those who got either got COVID or um, got vaccinated, but also you can get it if you um, take a swab test whenever like you're moving to another city, not for all of these reasons that are legally um, allowed by the, by the law that we have at the moment. And I think that if you, if you also allow the test, then I think that's a more equal way of doing it. But this is also within country, so you wouldn't have to, you know, for example, quarantine, which is something that you obviously have to do if you fly into another country. I don't know. It's just, it's so geopolitical. Like this whole thing is so <laughs> geopolitical. Like, <laughs> Right. Like, we're getting back to, you know, the, the nation state. Uh, it's yeah. like a recurring thing. So, but the thing is like, so I don't know how it is in Italy, but if you were like thinking about testing, it can get super expensive to try and get mm. it for like travel purposes. So for example, when I left Finland, I needed a negative test but because I like wasn't symptomatic and I like had no reason to like be able to go through um, public testing which is free I had to pay something like 250 euros to get my test to be able to fly mm. out um, and like depending of course like on the circumstances that just like also isn't it's not equitable for one but like it's also just like not sustainable mm. yeah so in Italy, like, you know, there's the RNA one, which is like the 200 euros one, which you get for free if you um, if you are, you know, positive or you have symptoms or you were in, you are like a close contact. Um, other than that, there's like the rapid one, which is like you can do it in 15 minutes and that's like 35 euros. But um, they started this, these initiatives, um, especially the Red Cross, to do it for free uh, to mm. a certain uh, to a certain group of people they call it like it, it has a nice name in, in italian they call it like uh the fluctuating test something like that like something you do up in the air or something but sounds more mm -hmm. poetic in italian than in english <laughs> but yeah no like 
I mean, I think the problem with this is that people really want to get back to normality. And to be honest, I don't think there's such thing as pre-COVID anymore. Like even if we get even if we get completely you no know, like immunized and we manage to vaccine like 70% of the world population, like we'll I think we'll still have, you know, contingent places where you have to like, you know, half the number of people in there. You will still have like social distancing. You will still have like a variant coming up. So I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, like those are all like, especially the variant part is like a very compelling reason to have vaccine passports because you like, do you want to sort of like, you want to limit uh, infections, you want to limit deaths. And that's like completely fair. But the other thing, so like equity issues are one thing. And the other is that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of clarity over what kind of software it would be and whether or not it would be proprietary. And I think that mm. was the main reason behind the WHO very recently announcing that for now they're not supporting a travel passport. And I think honestly, that's a pretty big verdict, right? Like it's an international mm. organization saying that like we don't um, endorse this kind of regulatory measure. Um, and I think there is like, a very reasonable case to be made that we don't like want it to be proprietary software that could lead to something like your data is like your biometric data for example is like being collected and is privately mm. owned basically yeah no i get the privacy concern in this 100 like it's it's scary because especially when having like the vaccine the takes on how you're going to live your life and like how your lifestyle will be and whether you'll be traveling, visiting friends or going like to dinner out in a restaurant in like in some places or in some cases, then yeah, I think it gets to the extreme. Like yeah. I find it quite Orwellian like these times we're living in. <laughs> no, yeah. you, you know, because like there is this invisible power, which is the vaccine. There's this invisible enemy, which is the virus. And then there's this ruling ruling class of people who are vaccinated at the moment we can do more things than the other people simply because of the fact that they have the vaccine right yeah i guess but you know what this also is biopower what? yeah it's biopower <laughs> of course it is <laughs> just michelle foucault yeah we've i've we've I'm having so much deja vu because we've said this exact same thing before. But what I'm saying is this podcast is a Foucault fan club at this point. 100%. Yeah. It's a second and, name. Yeah. But like, for example, so the thing is like, it's, it's difficult, right? Because like at the same time, if you have a vaccine passport that would exempt you from so many like really difficult restrictions, like you already said, like quarantine requirements, mm. for example, which is super tedious. And like not everyone has the opportunity to like take two weeks off of work, for example, mm -hmm. um, because they would have to be in person. The fire truck. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, it went by don't worry <laughs> yeah and so that's like that's a very real benefit of this like not everyone has like the capacity to take two weeks off of work where they would need to be in person just because like they have had to travel somewhere or they like you know for some reason um had to quarantine and so the vaccine passport could exempt people from that and that's a very real benefit yeah 100%. Uh, and then like for and like for example like i'm coming back to europe toward the end of may and then i just announced that i don't need 
a negative test result and I don't need to quarantine probably in Finland because I am vaccinated like they will take that in exchange and of Mm -hmm. course that's like a huge like that makes people's lives so much easier yeah yeah no 100 um I get your point yeah it makes people's lives much easier um I mean it's also you know vaccinating people is the only way out of this entire thing and also I feel like it's you know it's fair to see because I have always have a conflict um a com- mixed feelings about traveling in the pandemic as a mm-hmm. non-vaccinated person because on one hand like I would, you know, take the first flight tomorrow to what's whatever is the first play the flight the, the plane is going to. But on the other on the other hand, I know that you know if I travel, I might you know catch it there or bring some like some variant back to Italy or whatever. And you know if you are vaccinated, this supposedly does not happen. But that's the thing. Like, I think based on like current data the vaccines are pretty good at preventing spread like if like yeah you're vaccinated you don't contract it like spread it to other people but I don't think that's definitive either and so I completely agree like I won't like jump at a chance necessarily to like just like come to Italy right now but there's also like an interesting thing that's kind of implicit in this conversation which is Something that I think a growing number of media outlets are writing about and which is like super interesting is the anxiety of going back to quote unquote normal. I agree with what you said mm-hmm. about that. Just like not, there's no way that we're going to go back to exactly what life was like pre-COVID, at mm-hmm. least not for a long time. But, you know, there is kind of dread is, I think for some people, including myself, like replacing the excitement of gradually going back to normal life because it feels like such a big adjustment and and I feel like most people have like just now adjusted to living with COVID that going back to something else just feels kind of overwhelming I see I see that for me it's mostly the fear of it happening all over again like I'm completely fine with, you know, living like five years of my life like this, you know, semi-restricted, restricted, lockdown, not lockdown, whatever. But there are so many things that we don't know. Like, mm. you know, variants are unpredictable. Um, we don't know how much the vaccines last. We don't know how much the va- the variants are, you know, um you know the vaccines can cover for some variants like I was reading that for like the South African one it was not that effective blah 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 and and there will and there always will be like a variant you know like it's you know this entire thing and I was reading that you know Pfizer's thinking of doing a third boost or whatever um and so like to me like I don't want to get hopeful when you know we get to a certain point where there are few cases and then bang new virus or like bang oh no there's like this van that's killing everybody and there's nothing that you can do about it so you just hope not to die like that's um that's what I dread about going back to normal life like if I go back to normal life it has to stay there you know (laughs) no that's a super fair point and like especially you know um there have been many many scientists who have like come out to say that you know this will not be the last pandemic like this will happen even more because of climate change like you know um Mm -hmm. like large areas of the world dry out and just like temperatures rise so diseases just like spread a lot faster i think that's the logic behind it but yeah no that's super fair 
Anyway, should we talk about something more uplifting? <laughs> yeah, so the uplifting topic of today's episode is failure and how to deal with it. <laughs> One bang after the other. Yeah. This is just, just, hot. Just, just shoot me right here, like yeah. end, end me here. Today is just like a party. That's okay. That's okay. We all, yeah, we need a blue monday <laughs> no dude okay so like i need to say this because i just like oh my god so the last two weeks okay not this week this week was like my kind of recuperating week but the two weeks before that were absolute hell like i had so many deadlines just overlapping and i was so overwhelmed but like you know like when you're in it you don't realize how fucking bad it was until suddenly you like return like you you turn in that last paper that last midterm and you're like i suddenly have no work like for mm -hmm. three days and you're like the exhaustion just like hit me and so for the last like five days literally i've taken every break in between my classes to just like lay in bed and I was watching someone like fucking build a public pool on sims on twitch <laughs> and that was like the best thing ever but no I've just like been fucking exhausted no same same uh I just I didn't sleep much because I had to turn in and I could work on my thesis and I was using like you know when you have like these many deadlines and like I had to organize an event uh sending the stuff for the thesis uh do my readings do a paper etc that you stay I use my laptop so much and like I yes. always try to make like the conscious effort not using it at night and now I can't look at my laptop without wearing glasses like I just my eyes get in instantly dry and I'm just like my brain just like fries up no exactly that's exactly what happened to me too and like especially so wait not this week but last week I was I had to turn in like a preliminary data analysis for my research mm -hmm. project and I shit you not I was coding my data for four hours straight like my yeah. housemate he was like yeah no exactly because you're like just on stata and I turned stata into like the dark theme mm -hmm. And that helped a bit, but you're still staring at a screen, right? And it was so funny because I was like um, sitting at our dining table and just like started coding and I sat there for four hours and my housemate would like go and come back and go and come back. And he was like, you crazy lady, you crazy <laughs> data lady are still sitting in the same fucking spot. And I was like, you know it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And same, like that just has given me migraines and my eyes hurt and I felt nauseous because I've been staring at my screen so much last week yeah and it's that kind of like tiredness that you don't really know what to do with like it just has to pass I think because even if like if you try to nap but then you wake up that you're even like you're even more like tired than before and if you sleep more then you're just more more than tired and if you if you don't sleep at all you have like the adrenaline shock in the morning when you're just like hyperactive and then after 2 p.m you're just like oh my god I cannot like do this like right yeah I've realized I can't nap actually like when I nap I wake up not just disoriented like you know when you wake up and you don't quite know like what time mm -hmm. it is you might think it's like the night and it's not but also I just feel nauseous like I just feel physically really bad mm. and so I'd much rather like go to bed early 
which is mm-hmm. easier said than done too when you have a lot of work to do. No, I actually trained my brain over the years uh, to, you know, like if I tell myself, okay, I'm going to sleep five minutes, I can sleep in five minutes. Like, I don't know how wow. I do it. okay. <laughs> but I, I, like, because I always used to take a nap when I was, uh, I think in middle school, I was like 11 to 12. And I, I would sleep like one hour, half an hour after lunch. Um, and after that, I'm just like, okay, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, I set the timer in 20 minutes, I fall asleep or like 40 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. I don't know. I just do it. Like I, I learned, I learned it over the years and it helps. Like I trained Dude, myself. oh my God, this is like some, this is some like adult sleep training shit. You could write a book on that if you figure <laughs> out how you did it. <laughs> I don't know. Racking the dough. No, seriously yeah. though. So yeah, do it. <laughs> But so, you know, the last paper that I submitted on Monday was, um, it was a paper in humanitarian action. And so quite often in my policy classes, just because that's like, you know, my field and what I really like to do is sometimes I will like write arguments that are kind of out there. And, you know, I think that's what you should do. We're going to talk about risk aversion in just a minute, I think. But like, <laughs> I've really tried to, I like, I've, I've really tried to like, you know, if I have an argument that to me seems interesting and is like maybe a bit pushing it, but still reasonable, I'll write it. Like I'd much rather mm-hmm. write that than just like, you know, take something straight out of the reading and just yeah. like, you know, yeah, do that. Cause that's boring. That's boring. And that's like not interesting to anyone, but mm-hmm. so I submitted it. And of course, now I'm like in the inevitable, like in between of having submitted my paper and getting the grade back. And every once in a while, I like, I go into the space of like, oh my God, I'm going to fail. Like, I'm going to get a fucking like C minus on this. And she's going to be like, what the fuck is this? How could you do this? You're so fucking dumb. And um, and I circle through that, and that has been very stressful. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, I feel you so much because you know I was telling you before. I went to bed. I put an all night. I went to bed like at four a.m. to do my thesis, and I had to recode stuff. And I already knew how how I was supposed to do it. But before meeting my professor, I was so nervous because I was like, "Yo, what if it's like everything is wrong and like I have to restart from scratch?" And I just went to bed at four a.m. for like nothing and so yeah and I just you know it's just about it's a matter you know like you just have the the little imposter syndrome that kicks in and you know yeah. it tells you that you are not able to do it like even though you think you're doing it right you're doing it completely wrong and you're like oh my god is it the case or is it not the case 100% and actually so in this relating to this there was a super interesting thing that I read about um, descriptions of fear in the Jewish Bible. And this was in a book by Tara Moore called Playing Big that I just finished reading. And basically in the Hebrew Bible, according to her, there are two words for fear. There's bachad and there's yirah. And bachad is like basically, you know, the fear of the projected. So it's like, you're afraid of the plane crashing while you're on it. You're afraid of like mm-hmm. a murderer coming into your house. Like, you know, like completely imaginary things, but that in the moment feel very real. And that's like maybe what we'd typically 
sort of like characterized as fear but then there's Yura, which she in relation to the bible describes as like what we feel in the presence of the divine but mm-hmm. practically speaking that can also mean just like when we have more energy than what we're used to when we're taking up more space than what we're used to and apparently like the feeling of Yura, which is this kind of like more heady thing is like anxious fear the anxious nervousness of like before you go on like a first date before you give a speech before you like have a really important job interview like that's Mm -hmm. a different type of fear and honestly I've been thinking about this and like whenever I write something that's a bit out there Yura is what I feel it's not Bachar because I'm not like afraid of like actually getting a bad grade it's just like the Yura of like taking up more space intellectually I guess than Mm. what I might like permit myself to do does that make sense yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I, I definitely have that fear whenever I'm confronted with a new situation. Like like when, you know, you're building onto something, whether it's, you know, if in your case, writing an essay, and, you know, you know how to write an essay. You've done it a million times. Like you wrote hundreds of essays in your life, but, you know, you the topic is new and then you have this new idea and you're like, okay, mm, I know that I should do this. Like I know that, you know, the underlying work is this one and I'm doing it but should I add this extra thing and so what do you do when you have this fear um actually so Tara Moore says that there are very different ways of dealing with Bahad than Yura and actually she's like when you feel Yura and you can tell that it's that you should just like <laughs> lean into it because mm-hmm. so Tara Moore for context she is like um a business coach um has like basically her entire platform is that she wants women to start playing big and like just get over their fears and get over their risk aversion and just like go for it and according to her like usually women feel you are when they for example like talk about something that they're really meant to be doing like talk about their calling talk about really big ideas like um and you feel that when you are in a space where you really should like keep moving forward and so I don't think I really deal with it. I think now I'm just like starting to find ways of recognizing it for what it is mm-hmm. and working with it instead of trying to get rid of it. I mean, that works, you know, like you're you're not judging it. You're just, you know, letting it, you know, letting it in, sinking it in, letting it sink in and then, you're, you know, letting it pass by. But yeah, no, I think for me as well, like over the years, I've just told myself, you know, you know what, like game on, like you can be as scared as you want. Um, like I remember, like I can, I always tell myself I can still be scared, but still like, you know, be able to talk in public. And then, you know, I'm, I'm scared shitless and I'm like shaking whenever I have to give a speech. But then when I start speaking, I'm like, okay, it's game on, like it's now or never, you know? Um, so that helps me. A lot. I'm just like, you know, just throw yourself in the pool and swim. So then I think like the interesting question is in those situations, what is the thing that you're actually afraid of? I guess doing it all wrong, like forgetting, you know, if it's a speech, forgetting the words, uh, forgetting a really important part that, you know, rehearse. If it's, you know, my dissertation is like, oh, you know, having wasted two weeks over nothing. Um, yeah, like doing doing something wrong and you know that's that's doing something wrong that's you know so typical of women 
like, you know, because you were talking about, you know, risk aversion and the link with that. And that's because, you know, we tend to be really unforgiving towards ourselves. Yeah, no, 100%. And actually, so Tara Moore, in the same book, she talks about hiding strategies that women often fall into when they are talking about like their projects, thinking about like a big leap that they want to take in their careers, for example. And when I tell you, when I read this, it was like, I felt a bit called out. I'm going to, okay, before I start explaining everything, I'm just going to like read three that I thought were particularly pertinent. Um, So the first one is this before that. So according to Tara, this before that thinking where we say I need to do X before Y happens is an incorrect belief we hold about the order in which things need to happen happen for example you might say something like i really want to teach a workshop but first i need to create a website build the entire course get several people's feedback incorporate that feedback and save the money or you might rationalize i would love to meet some senior executive but i need to figure out what my ask is and how the conversation should go before using my one opportunity of wasting their time or wasting their time not off wasting the time but basically the idea is that just like in the grand scheme of your project, because you are so f- afraid of like doing things wrong, you feel like you have to do all of this preparation before you even take one step. And to be honest, I think like we very successfully just kind of like didn't do this when we started the podcast because we were just like, we're gonna make we the knew. <laughs> yeah, we exactly. Knew we we're gonna do it. <laughs> Yeah, because like we would have, we could have very easily been like, oh, well, you know, before we start the podcast, we need to like plan five episodes and we need to get people's feedback and we need to make the cover art and get people's feedback and like do all of this shit. When in reality, as we have now witnessed, because this is like episode 16, we needed a mic and like Wi Fi, probably, and, yeah, Wi Fi and an anchor website and like we're good to go, literally. Um, and so yeah but I've done this with a lot of different things though and I felt very called out Mm. yeah no I have really I I I agree with that but I also have the opposite experience in the sense that yes like I think for you know your own personal project you tend to do it because you you know tend to give yourself a structure and you know as perfectionists we didn't do it with a podcast because we knew we were gonna get so lost in the details and you know that's what's harmful about this or that is that you get you get so focused so much on the minor things like getting feedback, running the website, when what's your goal to do the workshop? What's your goal to the podcast? So why don't you just do the podcast, you know? Um, but in terms of, you know, like self-learning stuff, I tend to, like, I used to be very much like, okay, like, for example, um, for my thesis, I'm using some like financial theory I never used before and I don't really have much of a background in finance especially I don't really have an academic background in finance at all um I like I am trained as an economist by my university um and so I was like you know like oh yeah this means I need to you know study this part of econometrics I didn't study study this like oh this finance theory first because that's a foundation of finance and then I'm like no that's a waste of time I'm just gonna look at it like right away see if I understand it if, and if not then YouTube is my best friend and like some Chinese guy is gonna explain yeah. finance to me <laughs> so exactly and so, okay wait yeah. pause okay because that's 
I'm so glad you brought that up because this leads perfectly into the two next ones. My God, we're all living the same life. So the second one in line with like, you know, putting too much emphasis on unnecessary preparation, according to Tara Moore, women also tend to do something called designing at the whiteboard. And basically what this means is that quote when we design at the whiteboard we feel as if we are doing diligent work but much of that work turns out to be unproductive because what we create isn't aligned with our intended audience the whiteboard is safe for us because it doesn't expose our ideas to criticism or rejection it doesn't allow us to iterate improve and fine-tune our offering to our audience and so basically like the idea is that you are like polishing and developing something you know feeling like it has to be perfect before anyone sees it, feeling like it has to be done before you show it to anyone, which actually ends up being like a huge waste of not just time, but often resources and just like your own energy. Because what if like, once you've designed the whiteboard and you finally feel like it's polished and ready, you present it to your audience and it's actually a complete flop. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think, you know, because it takes, I think for me, when I, you know, design a whiteboard, I know I'm doing something that's like meaningless and not useful at all. I like, I'm perfectly aware of this, but that's like my way of procrastinating the fear of having to do the big thing, you know, because you're like, oh yeah, like, like I think to myself, oh yeah, but this is, you know, having the whiteboard and this kind of, you know, pattern, I don't know, chart, whatever in my head. Um, it's going to help anyways, you know, it's like uh, instrumental to the big thing, but in reality, you just need to, you know, um, pull up your sleeves and do it. Yeah. And this is interesting because, so while I was reading this again, I felt super called out, (laughs) but um, initially it was because I used to think that this is just like the way I am. Like I used to kind of like think that I was just someone who needed to process things before, like, for example, forming an opinion on it or like, like Mm. presenting work or something but honestly I don't think that's true because like if anything like at college some professors are really into cold calling for example professors are really into just like you know giving you a reading doing the whole flipped classroom thing and then having you like come back having done the reading and just like give your opinions on it and there's like really not that much time for you to like mull over it in many cases and I've done mm-hmm. fine like I yeah. can think on my feet um and so again I think this is just like a really nasty symptom of perfectionism in a lot of ways mm. I think it's also um uh, especially in relation to having an opinion I think it's also part of our UWC education to be really you know detail oriented when it comes to facts when it comes to opinions or comments because you know something UWC told me is that there's always another side and another side another point of view and another point of view and like it's really hard to tell what's right and what's not and so I tend to you know assign you know this parameter of rightfulness to the the to the you know the number of information that I can get like the higher the amount of opinions I listen to the amount the higher the number of point of views I can collapse into one then the best form my opinion is but it turns out you know sometimes to be just a mere generalization like sometimes it's just good to just read one thing and then see what your gut says yeah 100 and like also I mean like if you're trying to like constantly collapse multiple point of views 
into one thing what probably is going to end up happening is that you don't make a point at all like instead of you know presenting an opinion or like presenting your own view of something and this is something that Taramore also talks about instead of actually like presenting your own view you end up kind of like synthesizing and like curating other people's views on a topic yeah instead of making like a, comp- a contribution yourself that also reminds me of two things that one one thing I learned is that you know for the sake of rhetoric if you're you know writing an essay where you have to take a side I always argue to the like fullest extreme on one side or the other because it's just way easier to you know to like um to frame your thoughts in that way but this also reminds me of something that um a guy I met while uh while working this summer told me because I was you I was showing him my project and I was presenting it to him before presenting it to um, the, my managers. Um, and he was like, you can never, like, you know, there's always room for your opinion here. Like what people want to hear is your own opinion. And so, you know, there's, there's never such thing as, you know, too much, uh, too much of your opinion because people want you because they want your ideas. And I was like, okay, but like, what kind of ideas like I'm just doing this internship for the first time I don't know the company I studied this thing in two weeks and um, what I was my task was was to you know understand an industry so I was like okay like what do you mean I should have an opinion you know and I always force myself to do that ever since that reminds me of this really interesting anecdote that Cheryl Sandberg had in her book where I think she was I think she just started working at the treasury I want to say but like anyway the situation was that there was a like a big shot like hot shot guy who was like heading the agency and she was like the new person in the room in this meeting room not even like sitting at the table or anything just kind of there as an observer and suddenly the hot shot you know CEO guy it wasn't a CEO but you know like the secretary of the treasury for example was like Cheryl what do you think and it's not like she was like objectively like in terms of like degrees or certificates like the most qualified person to give that opinion but it's more like she was the new person who'd come from a different industry and therefore like maybe had a different way of looking at it just because she had like fresh eyes and had never dealt with that before Mm. yeah yeah, hundred percent. But you know, also, my like, I, what I find it so hard in this kind of situation you just described is that, you know, you have all these qualified people, and like, I just, you know, my mind is set on listen and taking in rather than you know, evaluate the things that I'm told at that same moment. So like, for me, I would have totally froze. Like, if someone like turned to me and was like, "Oh, Sophia, what do you think?" I've just, I would just be like, "Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to think because I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying." Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know if you feel this, but like I think about whether or not I'm qualified for things a lot. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah. I just like feel completely unqualified to talk about anything. (laughs) And it's like, when would a man ever say that? (laughs) I don't remember. I'm I'm serious. Like, I don't remember where I read this, but it was um, honestly, it was probably Tara Moore because that was the most recent thing I read. But um, it was about this woman who, like, her job is to design speaking events at Silicon Valley. So, like, just like curate, you know, speakers and have them come talk about like big ideas that they have. And 
anytime she would reach out to a woman they'd be like oh I'm really not that qualified to talk about this or like I'm really just like learning and I like don't know that much and at the same time at the same time she would have like men apply to her directly to come talk about something that they maybe had like read about just like a month ago or like had only been working on for a couple weeks and like objectively were not qualified by any reasonable standard to talk about that um and so again it is like this very obvious double standard which actually leads us to what you said before and the last point that i want to bring up from these hiding strategies which is hiding strategy number six i need the degree (laughs) so (laughs) quote One of the most common hiding strategies is also one of the easiest to overlook because it's something we generally regard as a good idea. Getting more and more and more education, Tara says. So if you decide to change careers from engineering to brain surgery, then additional education is a great idea. However, too many brilliant, competent women pursue additional degrees, certifications and licenses to make themselves more when they are enough already. Also, getting more education tends to be much easier, more structured, and much clearer than playing bigger. Mm. Uh, that's true. That's it true. is true. I mean, but I'm conflicted about this one because I mean, if you have the means to do that and the passion and intellectual curiosity, like I don't see why you shouldn't get extra, like even more educated. But what's you know what's wrong about this is that you know your level of qualification is already enough because there's already a man who has less than your education who's holding the position that you want to be in. So, yeah. I don't think, yeah, I don't think the point is about, like, education being, like, useless or anything. But it's, like, Mm -hmm. I think people might, like, try to stay in school or go back to school, like, fellow educational programs precisely because it's, like, less scary because someone else is telling you Mm -hmm. what to do. And also because, like, our society, like, rewards being highly educated. And so I guess, like, the question comes down to, do you actually need it? Like, is it actually going to, like, bring you to where you want to be? Like, you know, if you Mm -hmm. want to be a Supreme Court justice, you should probably go to law school. Like, a JD makes sense (laughs) in that situation. But if it's a question of, like, oh, you know, um, I really want to learn more about public policy, even though I have, like, volunteered and done also like policy analysis work already but I'd really need the master's degree then it's a question of like do you actually yeah I think it's you know it's you just have to throw yourself in it and then see and honestly for me the best like the times I've been most successful are the time where I was just completely winging it like the times I was just like completely faking it faking it to like the extreme like I was just you know completely dissociating myself from who I am and I was just like winging interviews um and it works it works so yeah yeah for sure so I think because we were saying that we wanted to talk about failure when we first introduced this this segment mm-hmm. and and I was trying to pitch this to Sophia and I don't think like in the middle of my migraine, I did a very good job of explaining how I think this relates to failure. So I'm going to try again, which is that. Also, again, my housemates just like are having like a fucking Mardi Gras like outside of my door. So I'm, mm. I ex- like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. But basically the idea that I had, and to me, this is very intuitive, mm-hmm. is that 
I think hiding strategies, of course, like, are a sign of just, like, structural ways in which women are, like, just insecure about their work. Like, you might know that you, like, are onto something really good, but just because of the way that, like, we're socialized to be like nice girls to be likable to be like all of these things you like just do not like feel the confidence to go forward with it and that's one thing but the second one is I think that it's a sign of like lacking good strategies to deal with failure because ultimately the thing that you're trying to shield yourself from is from doing things wrong it is Mm -hmm. like you're trying to shield yourself you're trying to like minimize the risks in a way like if you are constantly like at the whiteboard like you're trying to perfect this idea to the t then the thing that you're doing is shielding yourself from negative feedback you're trying to shield yourself from criticism and from failure ultimately yeah yeah no i 100% agree what you said and you, you know this also ties back to something we already mentioned in our podcast which is like you know our fear of also being smart or, you know, being called smart because then you're just like, no, dude, like I'm actually like as dumb as a toe. Like don't have right. that high expectation <laughs> of me. Uh, so, exactly. Like my goldfish like, brain. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like when someone tells me I'm smart, I'm like, no, I'm dumb as fuck. Like what do you want? Um, so yeah, no, hundred percent. Like I think it's a lacking strategy to do with failure because, women are heavily criti- like socially heavily criticized for making a mistake especially when you're exposing yourself to the pub- to the public opinion like the way um you know just uh, i think this happened with AOC um when she first won a race that when they they dug up some pictures of her um partying at um at college and you know they were like oh my god do you see like she's a congresswoman and she was having fun in her 20s i'm like yeah, as if you never did that, you know, and that kind of comment like never comes out as existential for a man that it is for a woman. And that's also like, especially also for appearance in politics, like um, the way, for example, Angela Merkel could be criticized for, you know, being a bit chubby um, is not as like as existential and as associated with her capability to hold office as you know, fucking Donald Trump not like having having you know like an orange face. Like nobody cares. People just mock him, but nobody cares. Nobody nobody doubts is like you know those who support him um, doubt his ability to be president. Right. Like people don't make conclusions about his ability based on his looks. Yeah, yeah. and you know, like, and you know, for a, if a woman makes a mistake, then you know that's. Um, people make a conclusion about your ability do they think you're you know you're just not able to do that when it's just a, like you know a mistake is just a setback in you know the journey of life um but for us women it's lived through as something that's way more unmissable and unfor- unforgiving right exactly i agree and that's because we have to be perfect and serve the male gaze hashtag internalized misogyny <laughs> Oh my god. We are here to please. Yeah, we are here to what what is the wait, what do evangelical Christians say? We are here to be um helpers. Oh my god. Was it fucking companions? <laughs> yeah. I fucking mm. cannot I don't read. Know. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. And like we are here to be hospitable and mm, and not step on anybody's toes. 
I think just you know, as you grow up, you just learn not to care. Yeah, and、Sorry. then get called a bitch for not caring. Yeah, and then you learn not to care about being called a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> but this is like so. This is what I wanted to say when you were talking about、um, like being really careful about constructing opinions, for example. Um, and I don't know, remember exactly what you said, but I remember wanting to say this about Tara Moore. Was like she had、um, she had a characterization of criticism that I don't know if I like, completely agree with. Where she was like, "Oh, you know,、um, feedback only says something about the person that gives it. It doesn't say anything about you." Which, like, yes, to a certain extent, but also like it does reflect your work in some sense, like.、Mm-hmm. It's not completely one or the other, but but she also has some really good stuff to say about how like when you are doing shit that people don't usually do, and when you're doing shit well as a woman, you will get criticized for it. Like that's just the name of the game. So if、yeah. anything, and this goes back to like the two different words of fear in the Hebrew Bible is like if that is what you're experiencing. Then maybe that's a sign that you should just like really keep going with whatever it is that you're doing. Just like really lean into it. Yeah, and honestly, to be honest, everyone is really everyone is good at pointing the finger. You know, they will always point a finger at you. Like even you know, like simply your friends or like your parents, you know, whatever your university choice, whatever. Like you know, I mean, if it, if you're so good at it, why don't you do it yourself? You know, if you're so good、yeah. at like criticizing and telling me how to do it better, why don't you do it yourself? And also, it's way easier to you know.、Um, Be a third party in this, and finding you know the pitfalls within someone's project or whatever because you're not directly involved in it and you don't don't see what's the rest of it and what's the ultimate goal of it. So honestly, the conclusion is people will never be happy about you or whatever you do. So you might as well be happy about yourself and do whatever. Amazing! I love that. Should we conclude on that note? <laughs> yes, we should. Do you? Have you overheard? I do. So this is from Overheard New York, Union Square. Fuck! I forgot my ID. Please don't take this the wrong way. But you're thirty three. No one is going to card you to get five dollar wine at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, according to Elise Vermont State Law, you're supposed to get carded if you look under forty. So,、Ooh. yeah. Anyway, but this was fun. This was very different from what I thought it was going to be, but I think we got some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. So,、uh, guys, if you want to support the podcast, please remember to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on, and leave us a five star review on iTunes because it does help us a lot. Also, send us voice messages because we want to hear from you. Bye, Sophia. Bye, Elsa. See you next week. <laughs>